For our scripture reading now, we turn to the book of 2 Samuel. You won't be surprised to hear that as we have been making our way through 1 and 2 Samuel over these months now. 2 Samuel, this morning, chapter 12. We left off last Sunday in a way that perhaps had us aching For this Sunday, we left off last Sunday in a very hard place. Remember, David had gone deep down into devastating sin. It was a classic case of sin leading to further sin. Started with a lustful glance. That led to adultery. That led to deception. That led to murder. And the murder of many, not just one. A spectacular moral collapse and abuse of power. Sin leading to further sin, because that's what sin is like. And therefore, it was also a classic real-life illustration of the truth that even genuine believers can sin badly. And David was. David was a believer. He was a man after God's own heart. And remember, we noticed last week there's warning in that truth as well as consolation. Warning because it puts us on notice to be wary of sin, but also consolation because it means that you're not beyond the grace of God if you've gone deep down into sin yourself. So that was last week. That was chapter 11. And remember how the chapter ended, it ended in a very hard place. It ended like this. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That's where we left off last week. That's where we pick up this week. Chapter 12. Hear now the word of God. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought, and he Brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight, 
You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and she called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. 
Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you again for your word. We remember what Samuel himself as a boy learned to say when you were speaking. He learned to say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And that is what we are now. Blessed to be numbered among your servants. And gathering now around this word. For we would hear your voice addressing us. Speak, Lord. By the scriptures and by the spirit. For your servants are listening. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've heard chapter 12. I said when we were getting started that we were left last week aching for the next chapter because of the way things ended at the end of the last chapter. Aching for some kind of resolution and relief, especially for repentance and forgiveness. And now that we've heard the chapter, we can say, yes, there is that in here, repentance and forgiveness, and we'll talk about that. But there's pain here, too. Even this chapter has its own ache, as well as its sweet relief. There's a lot in this one chapter, and so there's a lot that we can learn from it. And there there are three things especially that I want to highlight for us today. Three main points I want us to focus on. Three lessons that I want us to learn. And, And they roughly make their way through the story as we make our way through it. As it unfolds in chapter 12. The first of them is this. Rebuking somebody calls for wisdom. Rebuking somebody calls for wisdom. I want us to think a little bit about the way the prophet Nathan brings David to his senses. Really, it's God himself who uses Nathan the prophet to bring David to a place of repentance. And how does Nathan accomplish that? What does he say to David in order to bring him back while he tells him that story? About the poor man and the rich man. And the rich man wrongs the poor man. And David's blood boils when he hears the story. The fact that David was angry like that. Greatly angry. That suggests that Nathan didn't tell this story so that David would think it was fictional. That suggests that David heard this story as a real life story. And Nathan was was looking to him for some kind of royal judicial determination. In any case, it's clear that David's intention was to bring David to his senses about how he had wronged Uriah the Hittite. And it worked. And let me say, by the way, we, we talked about this a little bit last Sunday in our sermon discussion. Notice the way Nathan tells the story here. It revolves around the way David wronged Uriah. 
and not Bathsheba. That's the focus here. This is something we, we looked at in our sermon discussion last Sunday. If you turn a few pages over to 1 Kings 15, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it. But later on in 1 Kings 15, when the Bible looks back on David's whole life, it's summed up like this. This is 1 Kings 15 verse 5. David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. That's 1 Kings 15 verse 5. Notice in the Bible, this isn't principally the matter of David and Bathsheba, though that's how most people know it. In the Bible, this is more a matter of David and Uriah her husband. In fact, we noticed last week just how much Uriah stands out back in chapter 11 in that awful chapter. That's not to say that we can't call this the story of David and Bathsheba. It is that, and we can call it that, and we can reflect at great length upon how David wronged her. That's all true. But it's also true that David wronged him, Uriah, her husband. And, and that comes through in, in the story that Nathan tells and the wrong that's done in the story. What I really want to stress here is the wisdom, the, the thoughtfulness. We can even say the creativity that Nathan deploys in order to open David's eyes and bring him back. Now, the story that Nathan tells here, we don't know if he got that idea directly from the Lord, a direct revelation. He may have, he was a prophet, and so he would have had that, that kind of face-to-face -face interaction with the Lord. Or maybe Nathan simply came up with the idea himself. He may have, no doubt, he may have been a man of wisdom and thoughtfulness and creativity. So we don't know exactly how he got the idea to approach David this way, but we don't need to know. It doesn't matter. What we do know is that it was wise and that the very wisdom of God was reflected in it, whether naturally or supernaturally. This was the wisdom of God in Nathan's ministry. And, and there's a lesson here for us to learn. As we, as we reflect upon that. When it comes to rebuking somebody for their sin. That's the position Nathan was in as a prophet. That's a position that we sometimes find ourselves in. When it comes to rebuking somebody for their sin. It's all too easy to lose sight of the goal. Or at least what the goal ought to be. It's all too easy to get wrapped up in yourself. In such a way that your goal. If we can even call it that. Is simply to voice your own opinion. To get something off your chest. To bear your own testimony. So that you feel better. But that's all about you. That's not really about the other person that you're going to. In that case, your goal is simply that you yourself be heard. And when that's your goal. When you're wrapped up in yourself like that. And you just want to be heard. Well, in that case... It doesn't matter all that much how you say what you say. It just matters that you voice it. You're just a guy with a bullhorn. But if your goal is what it ought to be, which is 
to bring somebody back to God in some way. In that case, it does matter a great deal how you say what you say. In that case, you're going to want to say it in a way that's tailored to win them. And that takes wisdom and thoughtfulness and creativity. That takes knowing the person at least to some degree and, and what makes them tick and, and where they are in life and perhaps what led them down into the sin in the first place and, and, and the many things that they have to gain by repenting of it and coming back to God. At that point, you're not just a noisemaker with a bullhorn. At that point, you're a careful physician who's going to seek to be wise and skilled in the way that he sizes up an illness so he can settle on the right remedy. And isn't this, think about it, isn't this an application of the golden rule? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Isn't this how you would want someone else to treat you and speak to you and relate to you when they've got to come to you about some sin that you've committed. At that point, the last thing you want is a bullhorn in your face. That's not going to help. That's just going to give you a headache. And in fact, if anything, that might have the opposite effect of driving you even further away. Because it's just noise. No, at that point, what you want is a friend. What you want is someone who's clearly taken the time to think through how, how to speak to you, how to reach you. Because for them, it's not about themselves. For them, it's about you. It's about serving you because they truly care about you. So, Christian, even though Nathan was a prophet, and you're not, and we can recognize how extraordinary his role was how extraordinary this moment was. Still, this point is illustrated here, and you ought to take it to heart. Whenever you find yourself in the position of having to go to somebody about their sin, their sin, just remember, go to them in order to win them back, out of love for them, for their good, and not just to make a point, not just to make yourself feel better. Go to them in order to win them back. When that's your goal then it follows that you'll want to be wise in the way you go about it so that that good and worthy and loving goal is realized and they'll bless you for it. Because it'll be clear to them that love went into it. May it be so. So that's one lesson we can learn here. Rebuking somebody calls for wisdom. And Nathan, in his own prophetic way, puts that on display here. That's the first. Here's the second. And here is where we find the great relief that we were aching for after last Sunday. And the lesson is this. Friends, there is great grace for great sins. There is great grace for great sins there's no downplaying the depth of David's sin in this whole sad episode. We spent last Sunday morning taking a good long look, or a dreadful long look, at David's sin and the way it seemingly spiraled out of control. 
classic case of sin leading to further sin, a spectacular moral collapse. There's no downplaying any of that. And yet the Lord forgave him. Because when David says to Nathan, in response to what Nathan has said to him, David says, I've sinned against the Lord. What's Nathan's reply? The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Now, obviously, he's not saying that David's never going to die. David dies in 1 Kings 2. Spoiler alert. But he is saying that he's not going to die right now as a chastisement for this particular sin. Remember the thundering verdict that David rendered when he heard Nathan's story. This man deserves to die. That's the verdict, the sentence that just came out of David's own mouth. And so Nathan comes back to him and says, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Though you deserve it, as you've said. There's great grace here for David's great sins. God forgives him. Imagine that. And and what exactly does that mean? What is forgiveness? Well, what forgiveness is not is God actually forgetting that David did what he did. God does not actually forget anything ever. He cannot. He's God. Instead, what what forgiveness amounts to in this episode and in every exercise of divine forgiveness ever, what forgiveness amounts to is an act of God's free grace in which he determines that he will regard in a new way the sins that were committed and the person who committed them. He'll no longer regard those sins as unpaid for because Christ paid for them. So God regards the sins as paid for. And he will no longer regard that person as guilty in his sight for having committed those sins because his guilt has been taken away. It's been washed away in the blood of Christ. And so God now regards the person as innocent before him. So God regards the sin as paid for. Therefore, God regards the person as innocent. And in this episode, those things were true of David and his sin. And and David was a believer in Jesus. David trusted in Christ who died on the cross. It's just that he trusted in him with a faith that looks forward to his coming and his cross. And in Christ, with that kind of faith, that kind of Forward-looking, future-looking faith, David found forgiveness. Great grace after committing great sins. And it really is great. It really is amazing grace for a Christian to be forgiven like that. After he has failed his father like that. It is amazing grace. And you can tell that in the Bible. Just stop and think about the various expressions and images that the Bible uses to get across the wonder of forgiveness. There are all of these different phrases and and images and illustrations that the Bible uses to get across the idea that forgiveness is amazing indeed. One of them, we'll survey a few of them here. One of them is the one that's right here in this passage. Nathan says... The Lord also has put away your sin. 
In other, in other words, the Lord has removed from you the guilt of your sin. And here's the good news. When the Lord removes it, he removes it far, far away. How far? Well, David tells us in one of his psalms, Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. He, he, he puts our sin away. He removes it. And that's how far he takes it away. Infinitely far. As far as the east is from the west. And never to be put back. And he puts it away like that. He, he removes it like that. Because he sent it away. First. In an act of atonement. Think about the sending away of the scapegoat in the course of Israel's annual Day of Atonement. This is Leviticus 16. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness. Leviticus 16. On the Day of Atonement for Israel, it was a goat. Many, many, many years later, it was the Son of God. And God sent our sins away by placing them on Him. And Jesus took them away in His work of atonement. Which is why when we confess and repent, God puts away the guilt of our sin far away. Never to put it back. So that's one. Putting sin away. Here's another one. The idea of the erasing of a debt. That's another one of the the ways the Bible helps us to grasp this. That, That when we sin against God, when we sin against God who is our Father as His children, it creates a kind of debt that we owe Him. And forgiveness, the Bible says is the erasing of that debt. That's in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. So that's another one. Here's a third. Not just putting away our sin, erasing the debt created by our sin, but here's a third. The covering of our sins. Forgiveness, according to the Scriptures, is is like the covering over of that which is offensive. That which we do not want to have seen anymore. Psalm 32 says this. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Psalm 85 gets at it too. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. That's Psalm 85. So that's another one. Another one of them is the hiding of our sins. I love this one. This is Isaiah 38. It says this, In love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. What a lovely image for the hiding of our sins, the the putting away of the guilt of our sins. Lord, you have hidden the guilt of my sin behind your back so that you can't see it anymore. It's hidden like that. Another one is the trampling of our sins. This is a good one, too. This is Micah 7. 
says this, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. It's almost warlike. This thoroughgoing, determined act of divine forgiveness trampled underfoot. And here's one more, if you prefer an image from the ocean. Forgiveness is like the burying of the guilt of our sin in the depths of the sea. Micah 7.19, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. All of those different Images and expressions. It really is great. It really is amazing grace whenever we've sinned against our Father, even greatly, and we've gone back to Him in repentance and confession and found the forgiveness that we need. And, Christian, that grace is for you. Learn from David's experience in this episode. Christian, whenever you've sinned against God, and then you go back to God. So as to find forgiveness again. He really has put it away. The guilt of your sin. And I mean far away. As far as east is from the west. Because he sent it away. On Christ. Never to bring it back. And he really has erased the debt. And covered it. And hidden it. And trampled it. And buried it. In the depths of the sea. He really has brought you back to himself. And indeed, let that be one of the many reasons that you do run back to him after you've wandered away from him, even if you've wandered far. The very thought that grace, great grace like that is waiting for you. Let that woo you and win you back. There's great grace for great sins. So the first was rebuking somebody calls for wisdom. The second was the great grace that's on display here. Here's the third and last. A third lesson for us to learn today. And I hinted at this earlier when I read for us from Hebrews 12. And it is this. God chastens his children. God chastens his children. Whom he loves. And indeed chastens them not in spite of that love but actually as an expression of it. Because it's true. Nathan says to David, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. So there is that mercy. David does not experience in this moment the death that he deserves. But then what does Nathan say next? He says, verse 14, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. And remember, that's not all. Because even before we get to that point, remember what Nathan said to David in that hard speech that he had to deliver? Remember what Nathan said to him about what was in store? Back to verse 10. Nathan says, The sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite, 
to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And it goes on from there to describe the, the sin and misery that are going to arise within David's own household. And I'll tell you right now, in the weeks to come, we're going to see it come true. In some awful ways. Including eventually the rebellion of David's own son Absalom. And the things that Absalom does to try to gain the day. God chastens his children. What does that mean? It means that in some way God brings upon them. The bitter consequences of sin in order to teach and train and transform. And here in this passage, God is putting David on notice. That that's going to be true for him in the wake of his sin. Even his forgiven sin. Sin that he has genuinely repented of. That he's been truly, everlastingly forgiven of. Sometimes God is pleased to bring upon his own children the bitter consequences of sin and the aftermath of it. To be clear, there is not a drop of judicial wrath in it. It's not meant to satisfy divine justice. Jesus did that on the cross, and he did it to the uttermost. He did it fully. And when he was dying, he said, it is finished. So it's not meant to satisfy divine justice as if the cross weren't enough. Instead, it's meant to teach and train and transform. That is chastening. God chastens his children. And as soon as I say that, we've got to acknowledge there are some Christians. There are some Christian theologians who are exceedingly uncomfortable with that suggestion. The idea that God might see the sin of his children and feel a divine fatherly anger about it and chasten them for it. For some Christians, that just doesn't compute. This is a subject that was very much on my mind just a few years back when I was working on that master's thesis. That whole project was an opportunity for me to get down into the weeds of theological controversies that were swirling in 17th century England. Back then, I invited you to come down into the weeds a little bit with me because I shared with you then some of the things that I was learning and writing. I wrote my thesis back then on a pastor theologian by the name of Anthony Burgess. I wrote my thesis on a series of sermons that Burgess preached on the doctrine of justification. That is, our being forgiven by God and pronounced acceptable by God when we come to faith. Burgess preached several lengthy sermon series on that doctrine. And then, sure enough, those sermons turned into several lengthy books. The Puritans regularly did that sort of thing. And like a lot of... Puritan pastor theologians in 17th century England, Burgess spent a lot of time, and it was time well spent, taking on the errors of other Christian theologians who had been given the label antinomian. 
It was characteristic of antinomianism in 17th century England, and let me say, by the way, it still is, characteristic of antinomianism back then and now to downplay at least, if not deny outright, the idea that God might be angry with his children over their sin and chasten them for it. As I say, they were exceedingly uncomfortable with that suggestion. At least downplayed it, if not denying it outright, that God might be angry with his children over their sin and chasten them for it. And to try to understand where those antinomian theologians were coming from, all you got to do is back up to our second point this morning in this sermon. Remember? There's great grace for great sins. And the antinomians said, you bet there is. They said, yeah, let's give that great grace its due. The grace of God is so great, they said, that once you come to faith and you're justified, you're you're completely forgiven and accepted by God at that point, and for the rest of your life, Practically speaking, God doesn't even see your sin anymore. And some of them went so far as as to say that quite baldly. At that point, they said the only reality there is in the Christian life, the only wonderful, joyful reality, is that God sees you robed in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's the kind of thing that drove Anthony Burgess and other theologians positively crazy. The idea that God doesn't see the sins of Christians? That he's not angry over those sins with a fatherly anger? That he doesn't chasten Christians for their sins as his children? That got them pretty fired up. It's no wonder they preached and preached and preached and turned those sermons into long books. Not because they didn't love the doctrine of justification. They did. They they loved it. They boasted in it. They exalted in it. But simply because they recognized that that doctrine, the biblical doctrine of justification, did not lead to that conclusion. And they marshaled all sorts of scriptural evidence to contradict that antinomian claim, including this story, this chapter, this passage in David's life story. Burgess and others, time and time again, pointed to our chapter this morning and said, See? Here was a child of God. Here was a man after God's own heart. Here was a man who believed in God so as to experience the great grace of God. And clearly God was willing to give David over to the bitter fruits of sin. And if the antinomian theologians came back and said, well, that was the Old Testament. Things have changed. That's not the case for Christians anymore. And by the way, they did. Some of them, they had that answer at the ready. Well, at that point, Burgess and others had an answer too. They pointed to passages in the New Testament like Hebrews 12, quoting Proverbs 3. That's why I read it for us earlier in our service today. Hebrews 12 Quoting Proverbs, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. 
a New Testament passage quoting an Old Testament passage precisely because this is abiding truth for God's people throughout the ages, before and during and after the earthly life of our Savior. This was the case, and it is, and it is to come. So Christian, this is one to take to heart as well. On the front end, when you're facing temptation, this is a truth that you can bring to mind. It's a very good reason to resist temptation among so many reasons. That you don't want to put yourself in the position of having to be chastised the way David was. So, so on the front end, it's something to take to heart as a deterrent so as to be wary about temptation, so as to be fortified in the face of temptation when you are staring it in the face. But then on the back end, or, or maybe we should say in the middle of it, when you find that God is pleased to chasten you for your sin, just remember there's not a drop of judicial wrath in it. Christian, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you want to be careful that you not misinterpret the fact that you're experiencing in some way the bitter fruits of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you're experiencing that, some kind of chastisement, some kind of difficulty in the aftermath of sin. It's not because God has put the condemnation back. It's not because he's brought the guilt of your sin back as far as east is from west. No. It's not meant to satisfy divine justice. It's meant to teach and train and transform. Just remember, God is not treating you in those moments the way a wrathful judge would. How beautiful instead to think that he's treating you the way a loving father does. And how that one truth can sweeten our own salty tears. Take that to heart. And you will have taken quite a bit. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you. For this chapter, it is a relief to us after last Sunday. And at the same time, there is ache here. We bless you for it, for all that we have here. We do pray that you'd make us to be a people of wisdom in the words that we speak, including when those have to be words of rebuke. We pray that you would work in us Rest and relief and joy at the thought that there is great grace for all our sins, even the worst of them. And we pray that you would help us to keep resting in you when you are pleased to chasten us so as to teach and train and transform us. Indeed, we bless your name that you love us that much, that you don't leave us as we are. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.